Welcome to Daily Drive for Thursday, August 10th, 2023. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News here in Detroit. And I'm Kellen Walker in Las Vegas. Today on the show, Unifor seeks a three-year contract with the Detroit Three. Cadillac unveils its first all-electric Escalade, and EV suppliers rush to get silicon carbide chips. Plus, dealership buy-sell expert Stephen Dietrich talks about what the market looked like in 2022 and what he's seeing this year. I think we're still in that concentric circle where people can still add on what they've got and really add value without adding a ton of cost. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Canadian Auto Workers Union Unifor began its bargaining talks with Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis today. It will be seeking three-year collective agreements, which would put Unifor and the UAW on separate bargaining schedules in future years. A 36-month term is consistent with the timeline on Unifor's current contracts with the Detroit Three, but it bucks the longer-term trend toward four-year deals. That's traditionally the norm for hourly workers at the three automakers in both Canada and the U.S. Unifor confirmed to Automotive News Canada that it would be pursuing three-year terms in this year's bargaining without providing further details. Cadillac is electrifying the Escalade full-size SUV, giving its best-known nameplate a jolt of new energy, design, and capability. That's as the luxury brand moves to phase out gasoline-powered vehicles. General Motors President Mark Royce unveiled the new Escalade IQ on Wednesday in New York. I gotta say, you are witnessing the rise of Cadillac. It's our sleekest, most stunning full-size luxury SUV ever. The first ever Cadillac Escalade IQ. It comes with an eye-popping base price around $130,000 with shipping. That's more than every configuration of today's Escalade, except the V-Series performance version. It will also have a General Motors estimated 450-mile range. Production is set to begin in summer 2024 at GM's Factory Zero electric vehicle assembly plant in Detroit. Meanwhile, a top GM executive says the automaker is still struggling to ramp up production of electric vehicles. Speaking at a J.P. Morgan investor conference, GM CFO Paul Jacobson said the automaker's EVs, from Cadillac Lyric crossovers to Bright Drop vans, have been affected by an issue with assembling battery modules. It's a stumbling block first noted last week by CEO Mary Barra. Jacobson said GM had built more than 1,000 Lyrics in July, still well below the company's initial expectations. In early 2022, GM said it expected to build 25,000 Lyrics at the company's Spring Hill, Tennessee plant last year, but it fell far short of that target. In the first six months of this year, GM delivered fewer than 2,400 Lyrics to customers as it struggled with batteries and other issues. There's another critical part that will help determine whether automakers hit their ambitious EV targets. Silicon carbide microchips. Suppliers worldwide are investing heavily in those chips, spending billions of dollars to secure a stock of them, or even make their own. German supplier giant Robert Bosch is in the midst of a $275 million expansion of its semiconductor waferfab plant about 25 miles south of Stuttgart, Germany. Like other automotive companies, 
Bosch sees the market for silicon carbide chips exploding in the coming years, growing by 30% annually as vehicle electrification ramps up and automakers shoot for bold EV sales and production targets. And those are today's headlines. Jamie. Unifor has began their talks with the Detroit Three, and it sounds like Lana Payne hasn't had to raise her voice or throw proposals in the trash yet. <laughs> but all jokes aside, do you think this is a better idea to get Unifor on a separate bargaining schedule away from the UAW? I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, they had been often a, a year behind the UAW. Previous president Jerry Dias positioned them to go at the same time, I think they had felt kind of like they only got the leftovers of the Detroit Three's investment plans. But going toe-to-toe doesn't seem like a great opportunity for Unifor. It's just it's a smaller union. It's a smaller country. Uh, it's not quite as close in proximity to the Detroit Three and their headquarters. So I feel like that's not something that's ideal fit for them. It may work fine this year, but uh, going forward, trying to get a year ahead of the UAW makes a lot of sense for Unifor. Maybe they can get what what might fit for Canada and let the UAW try to mop up the rest. Gotcha. That makes sense. Uh, coming up, we have a package of stories in the most recent edition of Automotive News on the dealership buy-sell market. We'll hear about the most important trends next on Daily Drive. The auto industry's shift to carbon neutrality is here and it's accelerating. But is it enough? This is a moral imperative, an economic imperative, a moment of peril, but also a moment of extraordinary possibilities. No more hesitancy, no more excuses, no more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. Driving to Zero is a new podcast series from Automotive News that looks at the auto industry's roadmap to carbon neutrality. We take a big picture look at the environmental, political, and social trends pushing the move toward a greener future. And we pull back the curtain on how these decisions are being made at the highest levels. My team and I went to each car company separately. We sat down and we said, you know, what can you do? What you cannot do? How much time you need? How much is going to cost you? And that pay off big time. I said, you know, the, the headline that you need is, is GM believes in an all-electric future. And I think Dan Ammon and Mary Barra pretty much said the same thing, which is, is like, but, but we, we don't. Spoiler alert, they come around to that idea. Find out how and much more. I'm Jake Neer. Join me and Automotive News Executive Editor Jamie Butters on Driving to Zero, available wherever you get your podcasts starting September 11th. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. For the second year in a row, we at Automotive News rigorously documented the dealership buy-sell market. This data served as the foundation for our package of stories in this week's issue that examined the transactions in 2022 and explore what we've seen so far this year. For subscribers, it's a one-stop shop of buy-sell data that won't be found anywhere else. One key takeaway, the dealership buy-sell market in 2022 was a different kind of busy. On Wednesday, Automotive News retail editor Melissa Burden and I talked about that and other trends with Stephen Dietrich, a mergers and acquisitions attorney and partner with Holland and Knight, during a live event on LinkedIn. Here's a piece of our conversation. 
to start things off, Stephen, what's the mood of the buy-sell market now? What's the vibe? Are things winding down after the flurry of activity during the pandemic? Or might we see a new wave of mega deals? Well, I, I certainly don't think they're they're quieting down. I think there might be a little less manicness in the market, meaning maybe taking a little bit longer for deals to get done for any number of reasons um, that we can talk about. But there, there still is a very healthy appetite for the buying or the selling uh, depending on where that may be, there's, there's folks that want to get out of this, out of the space, like you said, either intentionally or because they're being asked, and it's a great opportunity. And, and certainly, there's a lot of disruption in an industry. Uh, folks are looking at it as opportunity, so there, there certainly is a fair appetite for people to buy as well. With respect to the mega deal side of the world, um, I, I don't think you, you know you never say never, but the, the, the number of opportunities for a mega deal I think are lower than some of the transactions over the last couple of years, but there are large dealership groups out there, and a lot of these dynamics uh, are going to be playing into them that, 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 that you talked about and mentioned in some of your articles as well. So it wouldn't shock me if there's a, there's a couple in the offing, maybe not yet this year or the tail end of the year, but you know into next year as things actually level out. Mm-hmm. Um, as, you, as you said, profits are kind of normalizing, although I think they're still well above 2019 levels, so that's still a very good business to be in. Stephen, I wanted to jump back to 2022 just, just to talk a little bit about some of the dynamics of the market last year. Um, we just just published on August 7th our kind of our year in look at 2022 and, and how many transactions we counted. Um, we had a little over 400 transactions, which was a little higher than 2021, but fewer stores trading hands. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, what did you see last year? Um, what was kind of what were the drivers of that type of a market, do you think? Well, I, I think I think a lot of the driver there were some of the consolidation issues and the valuation pressures on the public companies. So they're not in the they weren't driving a lot of the MA side of it given their economic situation. But the the concept of the consolidation, meaning some folks wanting to get get in and grow, made a whole lot of sense, and other folks being pressured. Because the base question a lot of folks ask is if you're gonna stay, you either have to you either have to get bigger or get out. And I'm not saying that's a necessarily per se rule, but a lot of people feel that way. And so a lot of the activity that we saw last year, and I think it mentioned in your articles as well, is folks shoring up their particular geographic region or on the edges of their geographic regions and you know, picking up you know, stores to fill in some gaps in their groups that they may have or looking at a, a town or a community or a state right next door. And so a lot of the work that was done with those sort of shore up issues, you know, buying one, two, three, four dealerships at a time, but it might be a group by you know, just three or four of those kind of transactions. So rather than one 20, 25, you know, you know, mega deal, you've got three or four, you know, two, three, four types of transactions being done by multiple groups across across the country. So the volume, you know, I think that's where you saw that particular volume as opposed to being you know, done in one big gulp, at, you know, like we saw in 2021. And the strategy for those folks would be what? It just to to grow to a certain level, but not maybe as large as a public a publicly traded auto retailer. Well, I, I think it's an interesting strategy. I think part part of it is just operationally. If if, if you've gotten to a certain size, you have an infrastructure, and to add on more revenue center is an easy add on side of that that side. If you already have a back office that's working on your accounting side, and you've sort of perfected the title processing, and it's a sort of a matter of scale. The biggest challenge there is the human capital to add on and run that. But if you've already gotten the concept of that scale, 
then to add on some more, assuming that it's a profitable dealership that you'd want to purchase, makes sense for you to grow your revenue and therefore offset some of that human capital cost. So it's a sort of a balance of having, you've already invested in that infrastructure for your dealership group. And so you want to maximize the use of that infrastructure. And that may mean buying one, two, three, four, whatever the number might be, until you sort of hit that tipping point that it might be, all right, then we have to do real investment <laughs> on those sides of things. And that that's a whole other quantum. But I think we're still in that concentric circle where people can still add on with what they've got and really add value without adding a ton of cost. Stephen, we had a question from the audience kind of along these lines. I wondered if you could could go a little deeper. They're asking, you know, about how do dealers think about acquisitions, you know, within a region and, and specifically like what are they looking for most? in the dealerships they target when they are trying to scale up within a manageable size? I, mean, I think a couple of things they're looking for, certainly geographic proximity and you know, not necessarily next door, but if, you know, if there's a big, you know, maybe a metro area or a lot of geography, it's hard to manage a store that's 50 or 100 miles away. Uh, so certainly if there's something within the, the, the scope of reasonable driving distance, you know, because you have to be hands-on and, and pay attention to that. So I think that's the easy side of it. The, the, the other piece would be other complementary brands. Um, you know, and maybe maybe there is some dealerships down the road or close by that are complementary, either, you know, because they're the same kind of, you know, brand that you may be operating with, or you want to have a contrary. You want to say, look, I want to have everybody who might be able to be looking to buy an SUV from a compact SUV to a luxury. So I want to have that entire market so that regardless of what the person is buying, they're buying it from us. So I think that there's a product mix mm-hmm. that, that comes into that you know, potential issue um, as well. Um, and then I think the other thing you want to look at, I think is really important, and I saw many more people thinking about this a little bit more, is culture. It's one thing to buy the balance sheet, for lack of a better phrase, you look at it and say, oh, it's a profitable business, but can it fit in to that culture? You know, So you, you don't just want to buy the the money or the revenue that's going there, if it's going to be a pain in your butt to operate it, or you have to you know, redo a bunch of different different things. We all know there's many different ways to run a dealership. So when I look at some of these strategics, I know that you know, clients I'm working with and you know, on the buyer or the selling side, the culture actually makes a, a big difference, perhaps, uh, as they're looking at that, especially if you're trying to add it into a group mm-hmm. in your town or city or region having a cultural outlier is going to be disruptive and, and more painful than, than the benefit you get. Well, being in the same yeah. region, you might also have a better sense of what the culture is there than if you were buying something, you know, two time zones away. That's a fair, it's a fair point. I mean, I mean, I guess the other part is the further away it may be, that makes some sense. The culture may not be as important because it can be operated separately and it doesn't have to be as integrated. So there, there's pros and cons. It really depends on what you're trying mm. to do with that particular growth. What are you seeing in terms of kind of the the size of the deals? I'm, I'm just kind of curious in 2023, in terms of you know number of dealerships that may be trading hands, um, as well as dealership pricing. I was wondering if you could touch a little bit on those two in terms of what you see now and maybe what you, ex- you expect to see the rest of the year. I think we're seeing a lot of what we saw in 2022 as far as the number of dealership kind of trading. You know, one, two, three, four, those sort of groups. Uh, that are out there. I, I, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, I, you know, it wouldn't shock me if there's a couple, you know, 15 to 20 or 25 that that, that come along at, at some point in time. But I, I think the deal 
size as far as number of dealerships will probably stay in that range because that, that's what there's still a lot of that you know for lack of a better phrase inventory uh, out there and available in your and and the the beneficial side you know, the, the publics haven't fully come out of I think some of their issues on their pricing although I think they're be a little bit more active um, looking at some acquisition opportunities and other sides so I think they've normalized you know what they went through in 2022 so they're entering the market again. I don't think they're over overpaying on aspects. I think they're being ter- careful and strategic um, as they go forward. But, but the, I think they're coming back in the market. With respect to the pricing, uh, I think it's holding relatively static from the pricing that we were seeing, you know, depending on the brand and, and other aspects, certainly. But we haven't seen a massive drop in the pricing as of yet. And I think, I think part of that is it's still a good business. You know, it was a phenomenal business in 20 and 21. Uh, and in and, and parts of 22. So the, but if you sort of take a bigger view of it, if you would have, if you talk to people and say, if you could have, you know, the, you know, the increase from, tw- from 2019 to what you're getting in 2023, I don't know what the math necessarily is there, you know, it's 20, 30% increase. Mm-hmm. If you would have asked someone in 2019, if you would have said, Hey, if this is what you're going to look like in 2023, would you be happy with that? People would have been ecstatic with that. You know, unfortunately now you've got, you know, these intervening years. And people are saying, well, we're not, we're going to be below budget from last year, which is just a sickness, you know, as you, as you think about it, you know, the people don't like to think about those issues happening. So internally, it makes them feel bad because they're below their budget. But if you look at it, you're like, well, but we're still doing pretty damn good from where we were. And because of that, it's a long way to get to my answer is the pricing, I think, is holding pretty steady because it's still a good value uh, out there. So I don't think you're seeing a big drop in value, even though you're, Year over year, you're seeing this drop in profitability. The value metric is holding steady over a longer period of time. Stephen Dietrich is a mergers and acquisitions attorney and partner with Holland and Knight. He spoke with me and Automotive News retail editor, Melissa Burden, on our most recent LinkedIn Live event. You can find the full conversation on the Automotive News LinkedIn page, and you can find our package on the 2022 dealership buy-sell market at autonews.com if you are a subscriber. And a note that we are offering Daily Drive listeners a special offer, 20% off a one-year automotive news digital subscription, which gets you access to all of our news, information, and analysis made for automotive industry leaders like you. Go to autonews.com slash Daily Drive promo to redeem. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News coordinating producer Jake Neer, as well as our own Lindsey Van Hulley, John Irwin, and Jack Walsworth for their reporting for today's podcast. And a special shout out to David Kennedy of our sibling publication, Automotive News Canada, for his reporting as well. You can get the latest news on retail, union negotiations, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. 